Welcome to episode 8 of Conversations with Neighbours. My name is Huda Tayob, and in this episode we ask how we might trace the afterlives of the Trans-Saharan trade routes of the 8th century. We travel with Omar Barada as he traces the histories of his once enslaved great-great-grandmother. He asks of her, What landscapes did Mu'aziza see? What borders did she cross? What languages did she hear? What does Africa look like? when you cross it on foot? What does Africa feel like when you have lost your home? We hear of Moshu Jimba's journey from Ilorin to Timbuktu that led him to establish a manuscript collection on his return to Nigeria. Almost every house in Ilorin has its own pool of manuscripts on various aspects of Islamic sciences. So when I returned, we started a preservation, collection, rescue concerning the Islamic manuscripts in the Holy Learning Emirates. We hear from musician Amino Balyamani of the healing purposes of Kanawa music in Morocco and the languages and syllabi that are unique to Ewe music from Ghana. There's so many interpretations, but like at the end of the day, the song is, is performed in a certain way, the dance is a certain way, so that's enough. The meaning is the song, that's it. The first voice you will hear from is Omar Barada, a writer, curator, and director of Dar al Ma'mun, a library and artist residency in Marrakesh. He shares with us the difficulties of remembering the trans Saharan slave trade through a personal reflection. كأنها مع سج الماسة مثلة طويل الساقين أقصر أطلاعه من السوس إلى أودغوست ومن أودغوست إلى غانا بضعة عشر يوما بالمفردة ومن غانا إلى كوغا نحو شغل ومن كوغا إلى ساما دون الشغل ومن ساما إلى كزم نحو شهر أيضا ومن كزم إلى كوكو شهر ومن كوكو إلى مرندا شهر ومن مرندا إلى زويلة شهران ومن زويلة إلى أجدابية شهر ومن زويلة إلى فزان خمس عشرة مرحلة ومن فزان إلى زغاوة شهران In Zagora, an oasis town in the southeast of Morocco, there is a painted sign that says Tombouctou, 52 jours. Timbuktu, 52 days. It's like a very old-fashioned road sign, a cliché of turbans and camels, harking back to an era when distance was measured by time and camels were indispensable travel companions. The road sign maintains a vision of black Africa as a separate, faraway place, far even from some of its parts. But we know that that distance has been crossed countless times over many centuries. Zagora as we know it is partly made out of Timbuktu, and Timbuktu as we know it is partly made out of Zagora. The road sign is a tourist attraction at the desert's edge, 
a two-dimensional tool of visual entertainment. It flattens a rich history. It also neutralizes politics by concealing what it actually refers to. In 1591, Sultan Ahmed al-Mansur's armies left Zagora to go conquer the Songhai, which led to the fall of an empire, the exploitation of its resources, and the enslavement of many. Travel is never innocent. وإنه يقطف عند بزوع الشمس وقال طعام أهل هذه البلاد الدرة والحمص واللوبيا ولبسهم جلود النمور لكثرة ما عندهم A couple of years ago I traveled back home to Casablanca on the occasion of Eid al-Fitr the holiday that marks the end of Ramadan Eid always involves family visits there's this beautiful notion in Islam we call Silat al-Rahim. Rahim is the Arabic word for womb. Silat al-Rahim literally means womb ties or womb linking. It's about getting family members together, reassembling the scattered kinship of those who come from the same extended womb. When I was a child, on every Eid, my parents would drag us around all day on endless visits to countless cousins whose names I was always at pains to remember. Clearly, people still do this, judging from the number of visitors at my grandmother's apartment. My mother's sisters and cousins were there. I decided to ask them about their memories of Mu'aziza, their great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, about whom, until then, I knew nothing. She lived well into the 1960s, so they all knew her throughout their childhood. But their evocation struck me as lacking in detail. Their memories bear the trace of some essential, unquestioned forgetfulness. I have to ask, to insist, to compare answers, to rephrase and ask again. Aziza means the dear one. Mu'aziza, mother dear, was not her birth name. She was a short, slightly bent, highly distinguished old black lady who always dressed in white and sat by herself on the long mtarba of the living room. She had scars on her right cheek. Or was it her left cheek? My grandmother, her granddaughter, says it was a sign of nobility where she came from. An aunt thinks it has to do with witchcraft. Someone mentions it may have been from mistreatment by slavers. Evidently, she never offered an explanation. Mu'aziza was not one to speak much. One of my aunts often spent the night with her, fshunha, as we say, within her embrace, in her bed. She remembers hearing her sob in the dead of night. Arjal Sudan, she repeated, 
O people of the Sudan. Arjel Sudan, between muffled cry and whispered song. Arjel Sudan, an appeal to vanished siblings. Arjel Sudan, wounded kinship's last resort. Arjel Sudan, a midnight chorus for wombs unlinked. The 80-year-old is a little girl again a child in a 19th century village. A group of men is luring her away, tricking her with a game of beans. Or was it peas? Hafula, halkhura. Hafula, halkhura. Here's a pea for you. Here's another pea. Like a trail of pebbles, all the way to oblivion. But what kind of trail? Which bled Sudan? Versions diverge. Was it a boat on a river? A tunnel in a mountain? A long line of camels? The narrative strays in mazes of contradictory projections. What landscapes did Mu'aziza see? What borders did she cross? What languages did she hear? What does Africa look like when you cross it on foot? What does Africa feel like when you have lost your home? Hafula al-Khura. 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 My great-great-grandfather bought her on a slave market and made her his wife. Did he do so right away? Did it happen long after? Did she meet others beforehand? Who did she work for? At whose hands did she suffer? No one seems to know. Did she not say, or did they not care? Did she not trust her own blood? Was she, by instinct, protecting those back home who had not been stolen? 
she enjoyed material comfort with the man for whose benefit she had been abducted from her family, her language, her familiar landscapes. She bore him children. These were his only children, and they were her only link to the lost womb of her kin, the only tangible trace, however faint, of her ancestor's future. No wonder that when she was with one of them, in the dead of night, among the soft insomnia of bedsheets, the song of relinking beckoned, Ajal Sudan. But of this song the children, and the children's children, knew not what to make. They kept it tucked inside their heart. Afula Alkhara. 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 On my great-great-grandfather's testament, Mu'aziza's name is stated as Stra al-Ginawiya. Stra may have been her original name, or a name she was given when she arrived in Morocco. Not a common appellation, but it sounds like the Arabic Satara, which means to hide, to conceal. Is she hiding? Was she hidden? Stra al-Gnawiya, i.e. Stra the Gnawi, Sitra the Gnawa one. Clearly, she had no last name of her own. Gnawiya must have been used as a signifier for her blackness, the blackness of Gnawa musicians, or the blackness of someone from Ghana or Guinea. Etymologies are slippery. The testament is from the 1940s. I wonder, did she ever listen to Gnawa music? Was her heart ever pierced by a Gimbri's percussive strings? Did she ever feel a pang of nostalgia upon hearing a Gnawa song slip from Arabic into a tongue more attuned to the cadences of her soul? As an old woman, after decades in Morocco, she spoke Arabic, of course, or rather, the Moroccan vernacular. But they say her tongue was muddled. She mispronounced certain sounds. An aunt seems to remember that sh in her tongue became j, that ain shuk became ain juk, ch became k. L'Khra became L'Khra. I wonder, is this enough for a linguist to tell me what her native language might have been? Baba, Baba, Khairo, Khairo, Arafa, Khairo, Baba. Nasana Sintia, you get Sudan, Sudan, Adushkan.
My aunt got quite animated in the process of remembering and painted a vivid image. They also said I was the first to ever ask these questions. But why did they never volunteer any of it in the first place? Did they, despite the apparent absence of danger, unconsciously inherit Moaziza's trauma? The fear of being separated? The terror of being owned? A burden carried and concealed by generations of women, passed on by my mother's 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 mother? What is it that compels me towards her? Does being a man play a part in my eagerness to know? What right do I have to her story? May I identify with her rather than with the family patriarch who bought her, who brought her in as a commodity? Is it possible to claim both the slaver and the enslaved? Is love imaginable between them? How many families in Morocco are keeping their Africanness at bay, hiding behind an idealized Arabness and the illusion of proximity to Europe? How does that account for the way sub-Saharan migrants are currently treated in our cities? By opening up this conversation, by recovering fragments of Mu'aziza's story, can I make a step toward unlearning the enforced forgetfulness of nation-states, the imposed borders and binaries of neo-colonial orders? And why did I need to cross an ocean before I could mentally stitch the desert? I thought of the young African-American woman who, 20 years earlier, learning I was from Africa, asked if I considered myself black. <laughs> 
I remember my bafflement. I had no articulated concept of race from my Moroccan childhood, and I was missing knowledge of the American context, of the notion of diaspora. What I was now missing was a picture of my great-great-grandmother, the dear one, the hidden one. I asked for pictures. There had to be pictures. After all, I grew up around portraits of my grandparents from the 1950s. Why were there none of her? Did no one photograph her? Did someone hide the pictures? Muaziza was the absent image of our shared blackness. A picture did show up one morning in my WhatsApp, sent by an aunt without warning or comment. Muaziza, dressed in white and slightly bent, on what looks like a rooftop, with laundry hanging by her side. The resolution is too low to determine whether the scars are on her left or her right cheek. But she seems to be carrying a little girl on her back, carrying the weight of generations that will gradually forget the shoulders on which they stood. A picture did show up, two pictures even, what may never show up is a sound, her voice, a trace of her, of my foreign tongue, my absent language. For years I have been saying that I have no mother tongue. By that I was referring to the predicaments of post-colonial existence, to never having learned Amazir, to French taking over Arabic, to English taking over everything. I had not considered that other, older condition, the black, forgotten, transformative space that lies in the passage between sh and j, between kh and k. Yeah, 
2016, Omar curated the exhibition Black Hands and was editor of The Africans, two projects which delve into migration and racial politics in Morocco. Moshu Jimba is the director of the Ilorian Manuscript Group at Kwara State University in Nigeria. He explains that Ilorin historically was one of the most vibrant centers of Arabic writing in non-Arab Africa from at least the 18th century. He shares here how his interest in manuscripts first started in 2008, following an arduous overland journey from Ilorin in Nigeria to Timbuktu in Mali. My interest in uh, manuscripts started in the year 2008 when I was contacted by a woman in Moroccan who resides in the uh, UK, London, called her Umu Idris. She saw a documentary anchored by Hakim Queen of South Africa on Timbuktu and the state of uh, manuscripts in Timbuktu. She watched the documentary and uh, was moved. And uh, she contacted a Nigerian friend in uh, London, uh, Yusuf Ayo Eleshinla, who is a childhood friend of mine. She contacted him that if he could contact a friend of his in Nigeria to embark on a journey to Timbuktu to, to see the possibility of her coming to rescue of some uh, manuscripts. So my friend contacted me and I prepared myself and I, I went to Timbuktu on her behalf. It was a very long journey, like seven days before I got there. And on my return also, it was seven, another seven days, making uh, it 14 days on the road. Uh, on the sea, on the road, on the, in the air, everything put together put in this. But I spent like uh, a week there. So when I came back, I wrote a book, very small um, uh, small booklet. I call it uh, From Ilorin to Timbuktu. In this book, Moshud writes, Historians argue that Timbuktu was the name of a black female slave owned by the Tuareg, who used to stay here during the winter. Others are of the opinion that the Tuareg built a store there for their goods, and later on, traders and Muslim scholars from Walata settled and the town rapidly expanded. History has it that Timbuktu was the greatest cultural capital and biggest centre of intellectual activities in the whole of Bilad al-Sudan. He writes, Timbuktu was the melting pot for caravans of traders crossing the desert and the fluvial caravans coming via the river Niger. The cultural glory of Timbuktu spanned the period between the 14th and 18th centuries. Perhaps the most glaring of the glories were those public libraries, which were equipped with the most expensive books in the field of Arabic and Islamic studies, medicine and philosophy. The libraries were owned by the scholars of the town, who kept their doors open to students. Almost every house in Ilorin has its own uh, pool of manuscripts on various aspects of Islamic sciences. So when I returned, we established Ilorin History and Culture Bureau with two other colleagues who started collecting manuscripts and uh, this is how, you know, the thing became uh, very popular. So by the grace of God, I'm the, um, I'm the pioneer of working on manuscripts, uh, preservation, collection, rescue, concerning the Islamic manuscripts in the whole Ilorin Emirates. Moshud explains that when he formed the Ilorin Manuscript Group in 2010, initially, it wasn't easy to collect manuscripts, as people were sceptical of the researchers' intentions. I formed Ilorin Manuscript Group, IMG. That was like 10 years ago or 11 years ago. 
we were looking for masseries, buying them, collecting them from house to house. Initially, it wasn't easy. It was like uh, people were skeptical. What are you going to do with all this? Are you going to sell them to the Europeans and make money? Why do all this? Why do you want to get all the uh, the kundi? That's what we call kundi. It's uh, asrar, the secrets, spiritual powers. We call it kundi. You know, so are you going to collect them to make use of them and you deprive us of our, of our forefathers' uh, uh, heritage? I know you can't do this to us. We will not allow you to do it. You know. So, but as time goes on, they now realize, you know, that they should release some of them to me because they were not keeping they were not keeping them neat. Now we try to introduce the modern way of uh, keeping the masses. And uh, before we know it, by the time we are five, six years old, we've been able to collect a lot of masses. You know, the modern scholars feel, I mean, the elites feel, since they could not read all these masses, they feel they are just uh, rubbish and filthy, filth. They pack them away and bury them or burn them away. So I kept telling them, this is what your great grandfathers, you know, collected for almost 50 years, writing them, collecting them, buying them. And you are now... You know, just destroying everything is, is unfortunate. Very few of them, uh, you know, yielded, but later they are realizing. The Illorin Manuscript Group now cares for more than 1,600 manuscripts from the region. He explains that some of the local writings were authored by members of the Fodio dynasty, including Nana Asma'u, the daughter of Usman den Fodio. Most of the scripts are either in Arabic language or Arabic script called Ajami which was the means to write local languages, such as Yoruba, Fulani, Hausa, or Baruba. The collection of manuscripts is varied and covers spiritual and mundane affairs. It includes a notable collection of what is known as Asrar or Asiri or Kundi. These are all words to describe the poetic texts which have protective powers, enable fortune-seeking, and act as a spiritual arsenal. The language is... um... It's actually mostly Arabic language. And uh, let me say clearly that almost 80 or even 85% of these uh, manuscripts are those of books originally written by the Arabs. But are popular among the uh, scholars of West Africa and Nigeria in particular. So all these books are the books that came from the Arab world through the pilgrims those days. All those who went to uh, Tumbuktu from the Hausa land, and from the Hausa land, the, you know, the books came down to the southern part of Nigeria. It's either they went to Tumbuktu or to Morocco, um, or those areas, or even uh, Mauritania or anywhere. So they bring all these books down to, and people, because of the scarcity of papers and uh, print materials, our forefathers were just recording, copying the books. So majority of the books, a large chunk of the books, or the manuscripts, were mainly from the Arab world. But there are some others as well that are of Nigerian authorship. Maybe scholars of the Fodio dynasty, Sheikh Osman Fodio, his younger brother, Abdullah bin Fodi, and their wazir, that is the minister, Wazir uh, Gidado. Then the children of uh, Sheikh Osman Fodio, uh, Muhammad Ballo, Muhammad Bukhari, and Nasmau, Nasmau, you know, his daughter. So all, all these people left behind very huge collection of books which they wrote. So all the books, you know, came down to the southern part of Nigeria, starting from Ilori. We call Ilori is the the melting pot between the south and the north. So come back to Ilori now. Like 15% of 
the manuscripts that we are able to lay our hands on were produced locally by Lawrence scholars, by Lawrence poets. Apart from the 85% that were just copying, the authors were not from Lawrence. They are uh, from outside, either from the Arab world or from Danfolio dynasty, which is part of Nigeria, of course. But the 15% that are of Lawrence origin are either the poems or Asrar. What we call Asrar is, uh, I've told you before, like uh, magic. Uh, we call it Kundi as well. It contains, uh, you know, power. But out of the 15% of the Lorin authorship, we can say that we have like uh, another 5% out of it that are not in Arabic language. In Arabic letters, but not Arabic language. So, uh, this, this Ajami is either in Yoruba language, which is uh, spoken widely in Elorin, or Fulfulde, that is a Fulani language, or a Nupi language, which is uh, another tribe that resides here in Elorin. So, you know, in the past, uh, Africans were building their uh, the house with uh, touch, you know, the bamboo and, uh, you know, all these grasses. Once the house catches fire, you know, it's like the whole community is, is gone. Uh, and when an African house is born, it's got, got, gets born, then the whole, whole library is born. Something they've been, you know, putting together for years, 20, 30 years, is gone. Moshud describes the process of collecting and gathering manuscripts and explains that most of the collections are still in the family homes they belong to. I went to selected houses in Elorin. Go to set an example, like five or six houses in Elorin. I now talk to them, please, you don't need to bring your manuscript to me, but give me a room. No matter how old, I will renovate it. We renovated all the rooms. We purchased the uh, iron uh, cupboard and uh, try to arrange, you know, uh, table, you know, um, carpet, not rug, carpet, leather, and ask them, teach them how to handle the uh, the cleaning size of and how to clean the manuscripts as well and keep them neat and tidy. So, like all these five houses, plus what we have, you know, on campus, everything runs to like 1,000. Uh, 650 now. No, there are still a lot of manuscripts outside there that have not been released by people. Not got enough grant to go and uh, rescue them. But these ones that have been rescued, the ones that we have on the, on, in the university is like a 200 plus. But the five other families, put them together, it's like we're having 1,650 or even 1,700 all fully digitized and uh, cataloged. I can bet you that we can still have up to like 15,000 manuscripts in other parts of uh, Lorraine. It's, uh, it's part of our tradition here in Lorraine. Every house in Lorraine here, old, uh, I'm not talking of the neon settlement, but the, the, you know, the heart of the Lorraine. Every house will have, you know, their own manuscript uh, collection that they are proud of, that they can boast of having inherited from their forefathers. Moshu talks about the longer history of travelling to study in neighbouring countries in West and North Africa. On his journey to Timbuktu, he recalled this poetic verse. The long stay of man in a place makes him lose his prestige. So migrate, and you shall look new. I saw that the sun is increasingly being loved by men because it is not static. So that connection had been there. Our forefathers went as far as Timbuktu to study 
they went as far as um, Morocco first to study Kairawan. Uh, they went to Azhar University to study the Borono Empire. They went to uh, a lot of them were in Azhar University. Even in Azhar University, we have Ruak uh, Al Parnawiji. Ruak is like a dormitory where students live and eat and do everything. So there is a place selected, it's separated for, you know, Ruak Al Parnawiji, those who came from Nigeria, Borno Empire. But today they are part and parcel of Nigeria. So can still refer to them as Nigerians. This tradition is still very strong today. In 2019, the Elorin Manuscript Group published their first book titled Arabic Manuscripts in the Elorin Emirate, edited by Moshud Mahmoud Jimba. We conclude with a short reading from the last stage of Moshud's journey, which started with the physical endurance of traveling over land to Timbuktu. He writes, In the early hours of Friday, the 9th of May, 2008, I set out on my journey back to Ilorin in a minibus. As usual, the roads were in a very bad condition. The driver was over-speeding and regularly contravening the traffic rules, and the police were everywhere, as if the country was in a state of emergency. They carried arms and ammunition, surely not to protect the road and its users, but rather to coerce the armless citizen to offer bribes. When we got to Ogbomoso, a distance of about 40 kilometers southwest of Ilorin, our vehicle developed a fault after buying adulterated fuel at a new petrol station. We spent two hours there during which the driver and some women exchanged hot words. Eventually we entered Ilorin, the city of Sheikh Alami, at 4 p.m on Friday the 9th of May, 2008. After two weeks I covered by land, river and air, a distance of 7,000 kilometers to and from Timbuktu. The last voice you will hear from is that of Moroccan musician Amino Valyamani. He is a founding member of Axis Trio and Dawn of Midi, where he composes, performs and records original music. In this conversation, he tells us more about his journey with Gnawa music of Morocco, Ewe music of Ghana, translation and opacity. Well, long story short, you know, I was raised in Casablanca, in Morocco, um, so uh, by default was uh, immersed in a very rich cultural, uh, uh, musical cultural world in Morocco, because it's a very rich country where, like, there's so many genres and every uh, region or, let's say, even village in Morocco has its own kind of cultural sphere, so um, very uh, immersed from a young child, but without knowing it because of the interesting um, um, link to our uh, ultimate uh, uh, conversational theme, uh, that kind of post-colonial um, 
um, complex, you know, the inferiority complex. So I was raised learning Western music. I learned classical piano and everything. Of course, I'm not saying I'm regretting any of this. I, it made me who I am today, obviously. So then I used all of that knowledge, so to speak, and, um, and, and used it for composition. So then I started writing music that has all of that stuff, the Moroccan, the West African, but also Western. So I would write stuff for piano or bass or whatever. And, but it's like using the language of non-Western instruments. So that was uh, very appealing to me to apply uh, non-Western lang musical languages to Western instruments. Um, and that's just one idea of, of, uh, of uh, implementing this reconciliation. Uh, I, um, I have other ideas hopefully I'll be able to implement in the future, but yeah, that's where I'm at and I just consider myself, you know, uh, although it sounds very cliched, music has no borders, but it's just really true and uh, it's, just, it's just music at the end of the day. It transcends virtuosity, it transcends uh, race, culture, all of those things. It has to sound good and if it moves you and in some way affects you, then uh, then it's a success and that's the, the purpose of music, so, yeah. Amina shares his thoughts on Gnawa music. We hear of connections to the Bambara people of Mali, to Sudan, Guinea and Senegal. Gnawa music is uh, another, one of the brotherhoods I mentioned earlier that, that practice uh, ritualistic healing. Um, nights where they just play music all night and, and dance and heal and trance, basically. Um, yes, those all have roots in Africa, West Africa a lot, but again, because we don't have much documentation, we can only assume certain things and um, do some kind of uh, uh, preliminary detec detective work to see that, yes, there are uh, some words that you can find in the Bambara people in Mali and some things you can hear that the Sudanese people say, some things that you hear that in, in Guinea or Senegal. So, so I would say the, a safe hypothesis would be, um, uh, yeah, that because of the slave trade uh, between West Africa and North Africa and the rest of the world, um, all these um, slaves that came from different villages, different backgrounds, different languages would, you know, join in these, uh, c converge in these markets, whatever, and then sold again. And that would enable, actually, a um, birth of a new kind of language. So in for Morocco, it would be the Gnawa, because Gnawa themselves, the masters of Gnawa today, themselves have different interpretations of what those words are. So in a way, it was lost over time. But that's what's interesting is that it starts with individual people with their own cultural background, their own language. But then since they join, then they give birth to this new thing. And then it transcends what, what, what came before and it becomes a new thing. And that's what Gnawa is. Uh, but again, then again, you see that a lot more than the area where we would presume the, these slaves came from, meaning mostly the Sahel, which is, you know, as west as Senegal, but as east as Sudan. That whole area was actually called Sudan, Sudan al-Kubra. Amino studied Ewe music with master Ghanaian drummer Alfred Ladzekpo and shares some thoughts here on its syntax and grammar. He says, from Ewe music, he learned how to use his ears. Well, the instruments, they all have um, kind of onomatop 
archaic names, like where the, the it's kind of the sound what it, that it does, and um, they're all um, uh, they all have a role, a specific role, and um, they all are playing a part of a phrase. So if you think of it like in language, you have a sentence with the verb, the noun, and all of that. But if you just have a verb alone, that's not an intelligible sentence or just, a, well, that's how Awe musicians think. They think of everything having to fit in parts where one drum alone is, is just alone, but it's only fits because of an against another pattern and then against another pattern, against another pattern. And then there's the lead drum, which is the only drum that actually doesn't really play patterns. It plays what they call calls. It calls the drummers to to hear what they did to change so that's it's a call and response Genau was like that too but um uh, music take it further and it's uh, they use the drumming syllables as a language that's how they teach they don't teach you by just playing they teach you by doing the syllables so a rhythm like this they'll say it's like these syllables that are also words sometimes they're actually um, f phrases in their away language like you know hey you bring me this thing or whatever it's actual language sometimes just as literal as that and sometimes it's just syllables but also within the language of the of the of the music so it's a music that's um, um, all about call and response all about patterns and um, and it's all about listening because there is no memorization of like, oh, I know, I know this piece. It ne next thing, this what's this is what's coming next, or this is what no. You, it's all about using your ears, and that's what was very appealing to me because I grew up in in a Western um, environment and Western pe pedagogical uh, environment that that always demanded memorization in a way which uh, the AOA teacher would call muscle memory. And he said, that's no good because it's just muscle memory. You want to internalize it. You want to use your ears. So it's not about the memorization. It's just immediate because you hear it, you know what to do. So you train your ears. And that was very valuable to me. And, um, and um, yeah, it changed who I am as a musician. Absolutely. So I base everything on my ears now since then. So again, another interesting thing is that they have one word that means all of them. It's uh, this weird V, which is like a woo, a wad, a wad sound, woo. So a VU. Woo means style, means music, means drum, means dancing, means poetry. The one word is all of it. Amina returns here to Morocco with Gnawa music, talking to the healing process of the Lila, night long rituals in which the music is performed. The main instrument, which is played by the lead, which is the ma'allim, master, is called the gimbri, or sintir. It has other names, I don't want to confuse uh, our listeners, so let's just stick with that, gimbri, or sintir. It's the most common name used for it, and uh, it's um, three strings, and it sounds like a bass, and it's um, uh, has camel skin, just like a banjo has the, the drum head, and so instead of it just being a resonating uh, body, how the banjo is played today. And in fact, there's many people that theorize that, that the gimbri is the father of the banjo. Uh, they actually do hit the skin with the, with the hands too. So it's percussive and a string instrument. So while they're playing the string, 
and it sounds like a bass, so it's like bass notes, but also at each stroke there is a hit on the drum head of the skin of the of the instrument, which gives it this like, again, bassy thump. So it's really powerful and uh, captivating. So that's the main instrument, and then also he'll sing the those lead songs, lead calls that will uh, incite everyone to do the response, the appropriate responses. So then the other musicians, which are called kuyos, on the left and the right of the of the malim, they play these metal castanets, which are very very loud, uh, but also very very entrancing. I think that's the key element here in Ganawa. And uh, they sing the responses. So you can imagine every song starts kind of in a slow tempo and uh, with the slow castanet rhythm playing over what the gimbri is playing and they're singing and then over time they're accelerating, they're accelerating and at some point they get really fast and with the castanets all sounding uh, so perfectly in unison even though sometimes there could be 20 of them because these musicians are so in tune and they're using their ears, they're in unison so that power of like, especially when you're there live and you hear seven, eight, or like I said, maybe even 20 castanets playing in perfect unison while speeding up, it will compel you to dance and trance. And that's the purpose of Gnau music. It's a healing music. People join these rituals called lilas, which, uh, which means night in Arabic. And um, they, they uh, play all these, uh, these pieces in an order. There's a repertoire where every set of songs is part of a color, which is associated to a spirit, which has its incense. It's a long and involved night of lots of different uh, symbolic gestures, uh, props too. There's some theatrical elements. Uh, um, but yeah, essentially the, uh, the, the premise here is that you, you come to these nights, these lilas, because you have a pain, either physical or uh, emotional, because you lost a loved one, or you miss uh, people that have traveled far away or that have migrated somewhere else. Any kind of pain, you, that's the reason why you're, you're there. And then the, the master musician will help facilitate the negotiation with the spirits. It's not about exorcism. It's not about like you come here and you have a thing and we're going to get it out. No, it's all about compromise. That's what's so interesting. It's all about the malim speaking with the spirit because he's a master so he knows what songs to do and what not to do. And uh, he's, uh, it's a conversation with the spirit that is possessing you and having him at peace with you instead of uh, exercising. So uh, in the Gnawa world, they believe that everyone has these spirits in them. They, it's not like that they come and they leave, they just in you and then you have to be at peace with it. So that's uh, Gnawa in a nutshell. <laughs> Talking through the oral, sonic and embodied traces of the Trans-Saharan slave and trade routes in Gnawa music, Amina reflects on questions of translation. Yet he also ponders on the untranslatable and opaque, on words where the meaning is unknown, 
and on the opacity of knowledge systems embedded in Gnawa culture. It's not so much about what's translatable and what's not. I think it's more about just the essence of what it is. So for example, if there's a word and we don't know what it means or like there are 10 different versions, it's almost irrelevant. That's what I'm trying to say because it's its presence in a certain culture is enough that you don't need to look deeper into that. Uh, it's not independent, it's not on its own, it's with a whole set of things that are either physical or also impalpable, either an energy or an emotion that comes with that song that uses that word or the actual rhythm. So it, it's, it, you can't separate it and be like, that word, oh, there's 10 different interpretations. I mean, you can, of course, but um, I think um, we're always going to be bound to fail in that approach because of so many interpretations, because of the lost history, because of its all oral history, nothing was documented. So I think we're in a position where we could gain more from it by just um, seeing it in its context and, um, and taking all of the, the elements in that context. So not just a word or words, it could be like the clothing and whatever, the music, the incense. I think the, the, the truth is there, basically. Uh, there's a song in Gnawa called Tura Tura, which is one of our famous songs, you know. And there's all these interpretations. Some people say it refers to, uh, uh, you know, actually coming from the word dor, like to turn. So tura, tura, dor, dor, and it's like turning. Some people say, oh, it's actually this other thing. Some people say, oh, it's the stick. Some people say, oh, it's a whatever. There's so many interpretations. But like at the end of the day, the song is, is performed in a certain way. The dance is a certain way. So that's enough. The meaning is how that song, that song. So each time you hear that song, they dance that way, they do these movements at, a, at certain moments, that's it, that's it. I um, started exploring over the years, putting my, my left hand inside the piano and muting the strings with my fingers while I'm playing with my right hand and it gives it a different kind of sound, actually like a muted, uh, choked uh, string sound but very percussive. Uh, and it was very appealing to me. And so over the years, I, I, I developed a uh, sort of um, uh, comfortability with that technique, that extended technique of the piano until it became kind of a, uh, a, a thing on its own. And um, the idea was, initially, the idea was just to, to, to uh, embrace more of the percussive aspect of the piano than the, the pianistic aspect. That was the initial idea. But then with all the, the knowledge that I was... Uh, accruing over the years of the West African language, the Ewe uh, music, and then the Gnawa, Moroccan. Then, uh, then it became literal, where I was like, oh, there's a rhythm I know, let me apply that rhythm on the piano. Instead of playing it on a drum, I'll play it with my right hand, but by muting the strings with my left hand. And, and that was, uh, you know, very interesting, because even though it's percussive, there's still tone, there's still pitch, even though it's muted, there's still pitch, and so pitch gives um, rhythm a different context in a certain way. 
And so that was very interesting. And, um, and I'm still exploring that. And uh, it's not something that I, I, I just uh, did once and I want to move on. I think it's going to be there with me for the rest of my life. That's the main interesting thing in this translation is that all of a sudden because you're uh, playing rhythms that usually are pitchless even though they have tones because drums also uh, have a tone obviously but it's a little more abstract when you give something actual pitches like a melody or something even though you're playing a rhythmic phrase it, it, it gives it a, a new life and, um, and uh, somehow a little more... Um, it kind of confuses the mind, you know, there's something there and um, yeah, so that was very appealing and that was to me the most interesting thing in that translation step. A recent project established by Amino is the online archive MoroccanTapes.com where you can listen and download Moroccan cassette tapes of the 70s and 80s. Thank you for listening. This is our last episode of the series. Conversations with Neighbours is co-curated by Huda Tayab and Bongani Kona, with production support and editing from Andre Burnett. The Archive of Forgetfulness Project is made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute. Listen and download all previous episodes on Apple and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Follow and stay in touch for updates via Twitter and Instagram.